Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to another episode. This is your host, David Kim. Hello, Ricardo. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm looking at your profile. You studied in UK and Australia and practiced lawyer, and sometime now you uh, launched uh, and running a startup in Africa, Equatorial Power. Can you please help to connect the dot, and then how? Please explain the how you how you have ended up launching and running Equatorial Power. Thanks, David. Um, as mentioned, I you know I had the fortune of living in many different countries. Um, I started. I did a bachelor's in economics and then a degree in law in Australia. I got qualified as a solicitor. A master's in London in law. Got qualified as a solicitor in England and Wales, and then moved to Italy to Rome, where I'm from. And, and again, got another qualification as a lawyer. And I practiced in structured finance and capital markets law, as well as we did some infrastructure deals. And, and so I, I really enjoy the workings of the markets and especially structuring finance for long-term projects uh, on the one hand. But I thought something was missing. I really wanted to do a bit more. And I, I wanted to do more for people. And I thought Africa is really the place to go. And, and Africa has always been a second home. And so, and so I thought the perfect crossroads between capital markets and infrastructure, if you will, on the one hand, and impact on the other is access to energy, because it is infrastructure and it changes people's lives. And there's a huge need in Africa. And so that's how you know my my sort of path and career brought me back to say, okay, let me let me leverage what I've learned, what I know, to try my best to innovate in this space. And and Uganda, as I mentioned, was not only a second home but also uh, a place where conditions were right. And 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 that's how we started here. And uh, I had always had a special connection to Africa. I uh, grew up here for a good, good chunk, about uh, seven years of my youth. And uh, when I started working as a structured finance lawyer in capital markets, I realized that I had a lot of love for the way capital markets work and the way you structure and fund infrastructure, but it was insufficient to me. I really wanted to do more. I wanted to do more for people. And obviously, Africa is, is, is a place with a lot of need. And to me, I, the, the difficulty was to find an intersection between where can I leverage knowledge of capital markets and infrastructure, yet bring a lot of impact to people. And access to energy for me is the perfect intersection of that, because you you need to be able to structure finding it. It is infrastructure at the end of the day, but it's life changing from day one. And so, looking at the opportunities, there was a number of countries I was considering uh, in Africa. And because I'd spent some time living in Uganda and already uh, knew people, uh, had friends here, a new government. And, and interestingly, Uganda, uh, over a few years ago, but this is still true today, had on the one hand a pretty sophisticated energy sector. Uh, just to give you some metrics, the, inter- the national utility of Uganda is the only profitable utility for energy on the continent. Um, the regulator was awarded the best regulator in Africa. So the, the sector has been unbundled for about 15 years. Yet, on the other hand, about 80% of the population lacks energy access. So it was a perfect mix where you have a big market and a big need, but at the same time, a well-structured sector. So I thought that was the perfect place to start. I understand. Uh, Simply put, it's a mini-grid power business. Can you explain a little bit more about what is your business model, how you make money? Absolutely. So we, this is our second attempt at mini-grids. I was in the sector before, and I realized that the technology is there for distributed power generation and, and distribution. Uh, but the business models needed a bit of evolution. So we focused on integrating. Right now, our mini grids look, you know, they are a little bit bigger than the average. We're now building a 600 kilowatts mini grid compared to an average of 20 to 30 kilowatts. Why? Because we, we've gone beyond 
serving electricity. We have our own, we do business incubation for the community and we have our own uh, industrial park that does water purification, ice manufacture and other such things, which the community needs and which require electricity and therefore allow us to stabilize the demand risk. Um, and now we're including and introducing the electric mobility component with motorcycles and because we work on lakes with boats as well. And so these are truly integrated systems um, I would describe as a multi-utility. And, and frankly, that, that is the business model innovation. Now, how do we make money? Well, that's, that's a good question, David. Uh, we're doing our best to, to start to make money. But, but the model, at least uh, the way the model looks, is that we develop projects from Greenfield. We partner with big, uh, big players. Our, our biggest partner today is Engie. Um, Engie is a, you know, the largest IPP on earth, the French multinational. And, and so what we do is we develop projects and we convert our development fee into equity of these projects. And, and then we have an EPC, a construction division in-house. So we're able to build the sites and make a margin. And then we co-operate the sites. And so the, the development fee, if you will, becomes our equity stake. And we have the right to co-invest when we raise capital. Um, we make a margin from construction short term and then mid to long term, we make a margin through operating and selling of electricity. So that's in a nutshell, our business model. Your customer are householder or the commercial operation? That's a good point. Um, our customers are, are everyone who needs power, including ourselves. And what I mean is we, we, service, uh, we service households, of course. Uh, we service businesses. On average, 15 to 20% of our customers are business connections. Um, but we also, the, the biggest consumer of our mini grids is ourselves because we have this agro processing hub or industrial park where we we use power to make other commodities that people need like clean water like ice like processing and so the, if you will there are four consumption poles in an equatorial power mini grid residential customers business customers our own agro processing facility and then the electric mobility proposition so basically, you don't have the offtake agreement with the National Electricity Corporation. You are selling the electricity to household and commercial operation or to yourselves. Then the, how Correct. do you charge? How do you charge? How do you collect the money? That's a very good point. So um, technology-wise, we have prepaid smart meters and people prepay on mobile phones with mobile money. As you know, mobile phones are very widespread in sub-Saharan Africa and people are very used to not only using mobile money, but to prepaying. So our collection rate is close to 100%. Um, that's a very good point. Um, but but the, the tariff setting is dynamic and it, uh, on the one hand, requires regulatory approval, which is rather complex, but we're also able to have a dynamic uh, pricing, for example, uh, on customer classes and time of use um, scenarios. So I hope that answers uh, your question. Uh, yes, but what if the householder or the, I mean, commercial business who want to use your electricity if they don't have money? Well, this is a good point. And it's also a common misconception, if you allow me, David, because today in some of the poorest areas on earth, and I would love to take you and Uganda and Congo, the moment you can fly here, I'll take you personally. And you'll see that these villages are very poor, but people are already spending a substantial amount of their income in substitutes for electricity starting from firewood for charcoal uh, to batteries, to diesel for small generators, to paying for somebody to ride their bicycle to the next village and pay good money to, to charge 10 cell phones and come back. You see, so there is already a very high level of expenditure for electricity. And we are substituting that for much cheaper 
offering a much better service. We're offering them electricity. So the conception of affordability is somewhat skewed. There is, I can guarantee after almost 10 years experience in the space, there is affordability. Now, of course, if you're charging power at a dollar per kilowatt hour, then people will not consume very much. So equatorial power, one of the distinctions between us and others, I mentioned our integrated model, but the second thing we're very proud of is we try our best through this integration to spread the sale, right? To, to spread the risk of, of and build bigger generation, which allows us to lower the tariff. So in terms of mini grid, we have, uh, we have among the lowest tariff on the continent right now. Uh, it's still high um, because of course there are costs, but uh, how we, much we're doing it? our best to get that down. Can I ask how much is it? It really depends. Uh, it depends on the country. It depends on the customer type. It depends on the time of use. But to give you an indication in Uganda, we'll be selling to household customers at, uh, at under 40 cents. And we're hoping uh, that or as soon as uh, next year, we'll be closer to 30 cents. So that's our ambition, $30 cents. Now, to give you an indication, in the main city, the national utility sells at 20 or even yes. 18. Yep. Why? Because, well, for many reasons, there are, you know, it's able to stabilize demand with industrial customers. It has legacy assets that were subsidized. In, yes. in some countries, the subsidy is ongoing. Right. So that's the challenge we face. Nowhere in the world, David, was electrification done without subsidies. So why should it be done in the poorest part of the world today? So we are a strong advocate for sector subsidies. We work with the World Bank and with others. Uh, the UN has a program called Sustainable Energy for All. That's very key to the sector. But uh, we do the best with what is available, and we try to balance the load to reduce the tariff. So uh, this power business, uh, other part of the world, the large economy in Asia is usually, they typically they uh, uh, build the power plant and they sell the electricity, national corpor uh, electricity corporation. So usually they oftentimes, many times they raise the money in terms of project financing. They put the 20 to 30% of their own equity in the project company. That's a typical structure, popular structure. But in your case, you are serving the uh, direct customer, buyer of electricity, whether they're a householder or the uh, commercial operation. So what is, uh, I mean, let's talk about the financing, fundraising side of your business. How do you raise money? Do you raise the in terms of company equity or the project equity or the project financing? Can you explain a little bit about uh, on that side? Of course, David. And let me start from the end and tell you that we need your help. We need your help because we need <laughs> investors. Yeah. We need investors to become aware, okay? Yeah. Because this is not a simple sector. It's a niche sector yes. that has tremendous promise. Now, in Africa alone, we're talking 650 million people without power, which because of demographic, demographic growth will be even more in 10 years. If you look at the world, it's 1.3 billion. So it's a, it's a, these are nobody's customers. Right? We can turn what looks like a problem into a huge opportunity if you have the right profile of investor, which is long-term. Now, to answer your question, the, the International Energy Agency says that, and World Bank say that between one to $200 billion need to go into mini-grids in Africa alone in 10 years. So that's, you know, it's, it's within the energy sector, that's a small niche, but for our size, it, it's huge. Now, how do we raise money? We, as you've understood, because I come from structured financing, we've tried from day one to allocate capital especially scarce capital, efficiently. So we have an asset company in each country. Um, we have an asset company where we try and bring in partners like NG, uh, where NG invests equity, uh, as well as other partners in other countries. And we try and uh, raise subsidies for those projects. And we try, we're now trying to structure an asset co-debt facility. Okay, with large development banks like European Investment Bank, like Development Finance Corporation, and these names. Now, the idea 
is that we would get, there would be a small tranche left in there for our equity. Part of that, part of that is the conversion of the value, so our development fee. Okay, we we develop a project, our sweat equity, if you will, and the other part we have to raise at corporate level. So that's how we fund the asset co. Now at corporate level, we were lucky to have supporters like the Shell Foundation, who has supported us a lot. We were very successful in winning uh, calls for proposals and grants, and that's kept us going. We have an angel investor uh, also came in from Norway, but now we are raising a Series A round. So we're raising uh, a few million dollars at the corporate level to support our team and the operations for expansion, but also to about 50% goes for operations and expansion. And the other 50%, we're going to co-invest with our partners at the asset co-level. But the way we structured the model allows us to have maximum leverage, not only of our partner's equity, but of the debt and the grant. And therefore, uh, we think this is, a, this is not only a sustainable, but a, a way to accelerate and replicate and scale. Um, so once again, David, with your help, we hope to attract some Asian investors as well. Why not? Yeah, I'm happy to help. Yeah, if we have a chance, yes. Yeah. But if I were you, I mean, I can understand from your explanation. You have a lot of challenges, and you leverage a lot of different ways to raise money to for your project, right? But if I were you, I'll tell the investor, lender. I mean, compared to the typical large power project, they, I mean, based on the bankable uh, offtake agreement with the National Electricity Corporation, then it's uh, all the legal risk, right? But also is uh, in, in frontier market, in some cases, they have, they have some comp conflict or the competition issue. But in your project, in your case, I can feel that, that you have, a, I mean, the very well distributed portfolio of the customer, right? So risk is a very well mitigated in terms of statistic. But what is the biggest challenge and gap you felt when you pitched outside investor about your project? David, I, we are ready to make you an ambassador. You've hit the nail on the head. <laughs> I mean, look, we have, uh, you said it exactly, right? Would you rather put 100 million in one project with one off taker, which is a bankrupt government, or in five countries with hundreds of thousands of customers that need that good as an essential good. So you've hit the nail in terms of risk. This is a much better way of spreading in scale. Yes. The challenge is to getting to scale. So uh, our biggest challenge today with governments is them understanding that we need uh, long-term visibility. So we are very, I think we are one of the first mini grid companies to negotiate concessions. You know, we are trying to treat the sector for what it is namely long-term infrastructure. So I want bankable concessions, just like oil and gas, just like the electricity utility. I don't want some uh, small tech type play. This is infrastructure long-term. So this has been a challenge. We, we've, been, we've had some success, but it's difficult to negotiate at that level with the government when you're so small. Uh, and with investors, I think that the vision, they buy into the vision. So if I could accelerate forward and, and show what I'm saying, I think they, everybody would invest. The challenge is finding those investors that are willing to come next to you, hold your hand and, and put that money and believe in you, right? There are some, we are talking to a number of them. I am confident that this year we'll be able to raise some capital. Um, but the challenge is always believing sufficiently, you know, depends who you're talking to. Some investors want to take risk, but they want very high reward. This is not a, a tech play. This is providing infrastructure for poor people, right? Yes. So you need patient capital. And, and unfortunately, too often funds that label themselves as social impact funds, you know, it's more of a PR play because they still want returns yes. just like normal private equity. So this is the difficulty. We're trying to find the right investor who understands that this is not just an economic, there is an economic return. And by the way, I think there's a good one. 
However, this is also a substantial uh, social impact. And so you need the capacity to be able to withstand some changes along the way and to maybe even put more capital in and grow. Uh, but that's, that's the kind of investor we would like to talk to. Somebody who, who understands and who says, you know what, this is, I believe in the 10-year vision and I'm not scared to do the first steps. Finance and investment sector organization, they are very much process-driven, even though the just you men, as you mentioned, they they are claiming that they are impact investor. They have the same training. They are running the same process and the same underwriting process. That that's the problem, right? Exactly. But, however, we are going through the global crisis pandemic. The crisis in history, throughout the history, change a lot of things. So I hope that the investor, I mean, reshaped their underwriting and bus model and then the, find out the reasonable area for the investment as you do. I, I, I agree with you. And let me just tell you one thing about the pandemic. I mean, first of all, Equatorial Power is now looking at the rural hospital vertical. So near the villages, we're now solarizing a few hospitals. But we've seen that our villages do extremely well throughout the pandemic because now they have services and they have services in an independent way to other places this is distributed infrastructure so two things are visible number one that the amount of impact is is way more comparative to another village today and number two that a lot of businesses are shut all over the world we are still going why because these are essential goods and so i think that we've come out it's been difficult but we've shown resilience and come out very strong and so, if anything, this should be an indication why, in diversity of portfolio, this is a business worth betting for. On. I agree. Learning from the mistake, trials and error, and fibbling business model millions of times, that's basically most important part of the entrepreneur journey, I think. So what has been biggest mistake or failure, if you want to call it failure, while running a startup so far? How did you deal with that situation? What is the lesson learned from that? <laughs> so many mistakes and failures like, uh, honestly yes. if i look back you, you you know nobody when you want to start being an entrepreneur it's very rare where you have a playbook and you have instructions you know yeah. so i don't um, believe in the playbook i, 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 I don't believe yeah, in the playbook. Me, me neither me neither you know uh, uh, I, I was reading i was reading a funny a funny comment or a t-shirt uh, on Mike Tyson, and it said everybody has a plan until you get punched in the mouth. Yes, and you know it's true. Yes, and that's like that's being an entrepreneur. Very true. You have a great plan, yes. and then you get punched, and then you get kicked, and you get punched again, <laughs> and you yes. just have to change. And 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 I think the biggest lesson for us, more than a failure, the lesson was to be dynamic, not be afraid, and remember that uh, that the, the, your biggest defense is not a shield, but it's your capacity and speed at which you can evolve and be dynamic. And frankly, the the lesson for us, I mean. I, there's been a lot of failures, don't get me wrong, but I'm extremely proud and not only my co-founders, but the team at their capacity to just evolve and adapt. And I think that is, that is the biggest asset. Like my biggest learning has been, I suppose, twofold. Personally, to just maintain that mindset because even when your plan is perfect, it's going to go sideways and then problems happen. And so the only thing that saves you is your philosophy and, and, and your perseverance, of course. And, then, and secondly, yeah, I mean, in terms of business, I would have probably spent a little more time early days um, pitching this to the right investors. So I've spent a lot of time, I've wasted a lot of time, I think, running around the wrong pots of capital. Uh, but then again, you know, going back, who knows? Do you do you do a pilot project first? Do you get a concession? It's always difficult. And, and the truth is you need all of them. But I think I would have spent a little bit more time talking to the right people 
the, the problem, David, is I didn't know who they were at the time. So, <laughs> but yeah. uh, looking back, I think we, we can be satisfied. And I hope that uh, looking forward, uh, we'll make you and others who believe in us proud. Yeah. What do you have on top of your mind for next step in the, this year? And also your end game in Africa with the equatorial energy. Yep. So next steps for this is an important year for us, David. We need to raise some uh, our Series A, so our first proper uh, equity round, uh, and that's uh, that's a key objective for the year. Um, we've already, you know, we've already deployed about five million dollars of infrastructure. We are currently closing at the asset co level. Uh, the next uh, we, we we have two operational projects, and we're finishing the next three. So we will have five in the next couple of months. We're already structuring financing for the next 25 in three countries. And, and so our dual objective is to fit, finalize, get to financial close for the project, raise a series A for the corporate. Um, and, the, and another challenge is, is, is the team. We are now much closer to having the right type of talent, uh, not there yet, but closer. That's another objective that we want to achieve. And the, and the very final one, which has always been dear to my heart and at the center of my vision is an integrated approach. So we have an amazing pilot this year that will be a mini grid that we interconnect to the national utility. And we try and demonstrate that as private sector nimble operators, we are better suited to operate rural customers and we can do it cheaper and we can make the customer grow faster. So if we can show that, then we've opened a whole new segment of this market in Africa and beyond Africa, where we can help utilities make money by operating their difficult customers. So these are, there's a lot, there's always a lot, but this year we want to tick as many of those boxes as possible. In terms of end game, I suppose, uh, I didn't answer that part. For the end game, I mean, this, this can go in many ways, but our biggest success would be to show that the business model works, that it is replicable, and that with the right partners, like NG, like Shell, like the, the big strategics in this world, as well as infrastructure funds, we can truly achieve the right scale. And I'm not talking about 100 sites, uh, you know, but I'm talking about hundreds of thousands of sites. And uh, it doesn't have to all be us, as long as we want others to come into the space, to copy, to learn from each other and grow. And, and the end game is to show that there is an asset class, which is new, which is profitable, and that is distributed delivery of infrastructure services. And, uh, and, and that would be a big success uh, from our point of view. Sounds very good. Thank you so much for the joining, on, joining the show today and then sharing the interesting story. Thank you, David. Thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, we look forward to being in touch. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, share with a friend, and drop me a review. Goodbye.